For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet a teacher and two students from Pueblo High who participated in a group project about walls and what they can represent. Remembering the triumphs and tragedies of the NASA Space Shuttle Program on the 40th anniversary of its first successful launch. And film essayist Chris DeShiel expects this weekend's Academy Awards to reflect a year of struggle for artists and their industry. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The meaning and purpose of walls, especially those that exist on international borders, have historically undergone many transformations in purpose and context. A recent exhibition at the Arizona State Museum explored these concepts. It also became a remote learning opportunity for local classrooms to share in. It culminated in poetry written by the students to express their individual feelings. Joining me now are two students and their teacher to tell us more. I'm Hector, and I was a part of the uh, workshops that we're going to be talking about, which were very creative. I'm in 10th grade, and I go to Pueblo High School. Hi, my name's Karina. Um, I am a sophomore at Pueblo High School, and I want others to know that I'm a very loving person. I'm Caroline Fioramanti, and it's my second year teaching at Pueblo High School. I asked if I could offer a creative writing class this year, and thankfully I got enough sign-up to run the class because it's been an absolute highlight for me. Briefly, explain the origin of the Walls Project. So that's Lisa Falk's project from the Arizona State Museum. And a couple of colleagues of mine sent me the application form thinking that I would be interested, and I was. What intrigued you about the project? Oh, Living in Tucson and doing a project on border walls and barriers, I thought would be wonderful. And then combining the concept of the literal wall with the metaphorical wall and writing, I thought it would be perfect for my creative writing class. How did you instruct your students to participate with this? I didn't. I really just let uh, Marge and Lisa, the two who are running the program, I let them do it. And it was It was delightful for me to be a student and to see what they came up with because Zoom and online teaching has been pretty challenging. Lisa had the ability to bring the exhibit to the students since the pandemic made it impossible for the students to travel to the exhibit. So that part was brilliant and something that I I couldn't have done. But then Marge, being the amazing teacher and writer that she is, she made the exhibit come alive with writing activities. And then beyond that, to delve into walls as metaphors, personal barriers or changers of the landscape, creation and destruction of family, so many things came up. It was very powerful. We went beyond the Mexico-U.S. border wall. Uh, It was also the Israel-West Bank barrier, Great Wall of China and the Berlin Wall. And we went beyond them to sort of create a character for the wall. And so students looked at music, poetry, dance, art, all in connection to their wall. Well, Corina, I'd like to hear from you. And when the unit began and you began thinking about the ideas of walls as being more than just bricks and mortar, 
What was the experience like for you? It made me realize like how much I hadn't really put much thought into it before. So when I first heard that we were going to be a part of this, it was a little intimidating um, because I thought we would have to go in with, you know, having a lot of background knowledge. Um, but the first workshop was kind of like, what do you know? You know, it wasn't that we just jumped straight into it. And, um, well, we did have to figure it out on our own. Um, as we went, we we designed the process, you know, we built it up. So it was very interactive. Um, as easy as it is to tune out on Zoom, um, not once I was somewhere else. It was, you know, I was there, I was present. Yeah. And our conversations were very um, deep and meaningful. So I think that really kept me, you know, just in the loop and staying active um, and like ready to contribute. Can you think back to the first time you were called on to share with the group your ideas, what what you said and how you feel about that now? It was the third workshop. We wrote in our most powerful voice a poem like to the wall or like we could go any direction with it, you know, what we wanted to say, our own experience with the wall. Um, and I wrote speaking to the wall. Um, I have family in Mexico, so and I had a grandmother that passed away last year and I never got to meet her and I wrote that. It was very sentimental. You know, I wish I would have gotten the opportunity to be with her. And it, it was a very powerful for me. And sharing it, it kind of made me come to realize, like, how big, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border was in my life and how much, like, importance it has in my family and the effects that it's brought. It was a lot to get off my chest, and I, and I realized that. I've never talked about it with other people. Hector, were were you there that day? Do you remember hearing Karina share the story of her family and the wall? Yeah. It was very heartwarming, I guess. Yeah. Do you have any kind of personal connection that you can cite with, with walls, Hector? How have barriers and boundaries um, been felt in your life? Well, I grew up in Mexico, and I remember the first time my parents told me that um, they tried crossing the border. And they told me that it was very scary. And at first, I was, I was very skeptical of that because I grew up in Mexico, but I was just a kid. I didn't know any better. And now that I'm older, I kind of look back at that and say, that's very, very hard for a parent, you know, who wants to give the child a better life, but the border is in their way. It's like an obstacle, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's really sentimental for me in many ways. Caroline, tell me what you observed as you saw your students apply themselves to this topic. I think the writing provided an outlet for a lot of confusion about our border wall, um, anger, family connection. So there was some joy in there as well. I think it was probably some of the most personal writing that I saw because of that connection. And when I had the students talk about uh, how they felt about the program and, you know, what they thought they got out of it. So many of them said to me, I wish we could have just focused on the Mexico-U.S. border wall and learned more about it because I don't know if it was the first time that they were being asked to think about it or consider it. Have any of you heard about the kind of celebrations that they have in Nogales over the wall where they would play volleyball and chess Mm -hmm. and things like that through and over the wall. Did that come up in this unit? And if so, what do you think about that? What kind of a lasting impression do you have 
when people kind of reverse the idea of a wall keeping them apart and instead the wall becomes something that brings them together? These walls, they can't take people's um, voices away, their existence, their resilience. Also, like just that joy, I think it's like celebrating. I think that shows that joy is a form of liberation itself. These walls are like man-made, um, but I think well, power is something that's inside of us, so you can't really shake that out of someone. Okay. Well, Hector? There's this one part in a border where someone put a seesaw on both sides of walls, and um, that was very cool to see because kids from both sides would play with each other, and there wasn't a disconnect between them, which was very um, crazy to see. And Karina, can you tell us about contributing to the group poem that was written? Something about the sort of democratic nature of assembling everyone's words and thoughts into a piece of art? Yeah, so DeMarge and Lisa had us um, all write a line. Prior to to making the poem um, together, we had to write, take the voice of the most powerful um, poem that we wrote and then, you know, incorporate it into, like, why, like, what should people know about these walls and, you know, their importance. Um, so, yeah, we, we all contributed and we got to learn how to work as a group more better. Um, and it was, it was a fun experience putting it all together and seeing um, what everybody had to um, contribute. Thanks to Hector, Karina, and their creative writing teacher, Caroline Fioramonte, for sharing their thoughts with us. Here now is the poem that their class at Pueblo High wrote together. A wall isn't just a wall, or a barrier isn't just a barrier. There are reasons why they're there. Walls can bring communities together, whether it's in the form of protest or in the form of gathering. Walls are meant to keep people away from their Chinese opinions. They're meant to bring them together. Walls stop. Walls are meant to be breached, climbed, grown over with life. Walls have kept people apart, but have also helped places flourish in a way. The barrier that we create in our hearts must be broken to heal and grow. Walls can give hope in a hopeless world, but they can also damage those with a restless soul. Walls can take away happiness and freedom. Walls are meant for many reasons, but walls can hear everything we say about them. Just like the saying, it feels like I'm talking to a wall. Well, will we be able to see a world without you? Because I hate you. I want you to know the wounds that have been created across the landscape will eventually heal because you cannot keep people from moving and loving and surviving. Walls weren't meant to keep people away. Walls shouldn't be a way of separation between families. So although these walls may rob, conquer, and divide us all, they cannot and will not ever take our voice. Thanks to Lisa Falk at the Arizona State Museum, educator Marge Pellegrino, and Ms. Fioramonte's class at Pueblo High School for their collaboration. A little more than 40 years ago, on April 14, 1981, I was 11 years old, and my grandmother took me to the circus in Fort Worth, Texas. The reason I remember it so well is because of a moment when the Will Rogers Coliseum went dark, 
and with great gravitas, the ringmaster announced that just then, at 3.20 in the afternoon, the space shuttle Columbia had successfully landed at Edwards Air Force Base. It was the very first space shuttle mission, crewed by astronauts Robert Crippen and John Young. Since the shuttle's speed had caused two sonic booms upon re-entry, they fired the big circus cannons twice, and the clowns and performers, decked out in spangled red, white, and blue, gave little American flags to the audience. I still have mine. It was the most joyous and unbridled celebration of patriotism that I have ever experienced, and it was thrilling to be living in a new age of space travel. The space shuttle program, which would come to an end 30 years later, would bring the world moments of both triumph and tragedy. Back in January of this year, I talked with University of Arizona researchers and authors Julie Swarstad-Johnson and Christopher Kokinos. Together, they edited the collection Beyond Earth's Edge, The Poetry of Spaceflight. And I asked them at the time to share some of the thoughts and memories that they carry with them about the space shuttle program. The poem that immediately comes to mind in this section is Adrian Matika's Those Minor Regrets. And he's writing about um, being a kid growing up um, in this first era of the space shuttle in the early 80s. Um, I think he maybe would resonate with that story of yours. But he connects both thinking about the space shuttle, um, being a young black boy kind of living in a, an impoverished situation, and then also thinking about Star Trek. So we have all these different pieces here of the actual space shuttle, uh, science fiction and the power of stories. And then also just the reality of daily life and trying to kind of make the best of, of a difficult time or a difficult situation. In one sense, this idea that the space shuttle failed and that it wasn't cost effective, it wasn't something that could be launched over and over again continuously, um, as had been the original idea. But in a really different sense, it enters the fabric of daily life through television, being able to watch shuttle launches, even in the case of Challenger being able to watch that tragedy almost in real time for people. The TV, I think, really brings space into people's lives in a really uh, firsthand kind of way. Also, with the shuttle era, we see this diversifying of um, the crew and who is actually included. We finally have women included. We finally have um, African-Americans and people of many different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so there's this sense that people can kind of identify with that a little bit more. More people feel like they can imagine themselves in space. Um, and so I think in the poems of this section, you see there's both this sense of the routine, um, the everydayness that I've been talking about, and also in a poem like Betty Adcock's Fall In. So this is a piece that talks about the destruction of the space shuttle Columbia. She said, um, do not imagine this is a story to be tamed by naming heroes who died for country and some further born worth dying for. So she's saying, in a sense, that don't just write this off as another kind of just a, a side effect of this heroic, wonderful program. This is this incredibly destructive moment um, where people died in a really terrible way, and it's worth acknowledging that. So the space shuttle, I think, is interesting in that it, it both became, it seems very routine for people, and you get that in these poems, but it's also still this incredibly dangerous and, and fraught undertaking, and poets in this section grapple with that as well. It was interesting for me to to read those poems because despite my sort of ongoing, ever since childhood interest in these things, 
it waned a little bit during the shuttle era. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but possibly because I felt like, you know, we're not going anywhere. You know, we're just circling the Earth. But in retrospect, you know, as the shuttle era went on, it's the Hubble Space Telescope that I come back to. And we have a couple of lovely poems in there by Adrian Rich and William Wenthe and uh, Tracy K. Smith on that reference the Hubble, which was just, you know, such a, an astonishing observatory and the repair mission. We have a poem actually by one of the astronauts who helped repair the Hubble Space Telescope. And so the shuttles, um, that initial sense that this is not a success because it was engineered with so many expectations in mind and, and sort of compromised to death, it could not become what had been originally envisioned. But it led to the launching of and repairing of, of these incredible scientific instruments and you know, the, the building of the International Space Station, another project that, you know, has come under scrutiny and whose legacy might be controversial, but has, as Julie said, like diversified crews brought nations together in this common enterprise to learn how to to live in a hostile environment through, a, you know, a cooperative and sustainable use of technology. That, to me, is, is, a, is a pretty pretty powerful paradigm that we could learn from here on Earth. We just heard Julie Swarstad-Johnson and Christopher Kokinos, co-editors of Beyond Earth's Edge, the poetry of spaceflight. It's a collection of space photographs paired with more than 80 poems that can help illuminate the darkness of the final frontier. This Sunday, the 93rd Annual Academy Awards will be broadcast, capping a year of unprecedented challenges for an industry that is still collectively figuring out how to move ahead. It remains to be seen if lessons have been learned during the pandemic, but film essayist Christy Scheel expects that many of the inequalities that the Oscars represent will continue. The Academy Awards ceremony is scheduled for April 25th this year, delayed two months because of COVID-19. I've shared my opinions about the Oscars before, that they're aggressively hyped as if they represent the highest standard of quality in cinema, when in fact they don't. Their overinflated prestige does have a symbolic function. Whenever there's controversy about the Oscars, it points to broader issues within the Anglo-American film industry. We've seen protests, for example, about the lack of representation of women and people of color in the Academy's nominations, which is a genuine concern, but in my view it reflects the more fundamental issue of the industry as a whole, not having enough women and people of color as directors, writers, producers, actors, etc. And this remains a bigger problem than the Oscars. But there are other developments that represent kind of a turning point in the movie business, and it was brought into sharp relief last year by the coronavirus pandemic. For quite some time, the traditional way of watching movies in a theater with an audience has been challenged by the new trend of what we call streaming services or platforms. Before this, there had been some tension between theatrical exhibition and the renting or buying of videos, DVDs, and Blu-rays. Yet theaters held their own for the most part. Then, with the advent of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, and the rest, viewers could pay a monthly fee of somewhere around $5 to $15 and have hundreds and hundreds of movies at their fingertips that they could watch at home on their big screen TVs. Meanwhile, the cost of going out to a movie kept growing. In some places, you pay close to $20 at the box office. 
then multiply that if you're bringing a date or your family and you're looking at quite a big expense. The theaters themselves are making their money primarily from concessions like popcorn because the production and distribution of films is so costly. Then came the pandemic. Theaters closed and the industry focused on releasing their films to the streaming services. These platforms had already gotten into the production business themselves. Netflix, Amazon, and Apple are now full-fledged movie studios. The other companies, such as Warner's HBO and Paramount's CBS, are all in the game as well. Now, without theaters, the convention of having a movie show theatrically for 90 days before going to streaming is gone. Almost all the films that have been released during the pandemic have never been screened in a theater. And the theaters have taken a big hit. AMC, for example, is close to bankruptcy. Some independent theaters have been closing down for good. The art theaters, like Tucson's Loft Cinema, that are set up as nonprofits, have been relying on member donations to stay afloat, and by making innovations such as outdoor screenings and the renting of current streaming titles that don't have studio clout behind them. Community engagement is a key part of all this. Those who, like me, prefer films on a big screen with an audience will need to make an effort to support the venues we love. So what will happen when, as we all hope, the pandemic ends and we return to something resembling normal life? People will still want to see movies in theaters, but the studios will be offering the choice of watching at home much sooner than before. That means that the industry will need to find ways to be less expensive. The studios are still attached to their old business model that depends on blockbuster films designed to appeal to mass audiences, but they'll need to find the willingness to produce less expensive movies as well that can also succeed at the box office on a smaller scale, but still profitable, if they want to prevent a massive failure of movie theaters around the country and the world. Meanwhile, the Oscar ceremony will have fewer people. Nobody but nominees and presenters allowed to attend, and some of it broadcast virtually, which is what we've all had to get used to for the past year. New diversity and inclusion standards may account for a higher percentage of female and minority nominees. There are two women nominated for Best Director, for instance. But the big question hanging over the film industry is, what will the movie experience be like in a post-pandemic world? It's going to be different, that's for sure. But we don't know exactly how. This is Chris DeShiel for Arizona Spotlight. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of artists dedicated to helping young writers and our community explore the power and possibility of bringing their stories to life. It's called Stories That Soar, and next we'll hear one set to music, written by Minerva, a fifth grader at Sam Hughes Elementary. It's called The Silly Man. I am a silly man, I am a happy man. I make the children laugh, I make the cats dance, and the dogs sing. People call me the silly man I am kind, gentle, and patient When I go walking down the street I wear stilts and juggle balls When I go walking down the street I make people happy 
and that makes me happy. One day I was walking down the street, and all the children came running, except one. When I was in the store, all the children came running, except for one. Then I came up to the child who didn't come to me. So she seemed sad and lonely. So I asked her what the matter was, and she said that she had moved here from a different state and didn't have any friends and didn't know why everybody came and ran to me. So I told her that they came to me because I made them laugh, and I told stories and laughed at their jokes. Mm -hmm. She could call me the silly man, like everybody else. And then she hugged me, and then she hugged me, and told me her name was Martha. So I introduced Martha to a girl named Tina, and they became fast friends. And when I came walking down the street, all the children ran to me, including Martha. And when I was in the store, all the children ran to me, including Martha, including Martha. The lyricist was Minerva, a fifth grader at Sam Hughes Elementary. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar. Interested student-age writers can submit their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. And maybe one day, you'll hear it on this show. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.